This is a Federal News Network podcast. Remember the CARES Act, enacted at the height of the pandemic. Among other things, it let agencies reimburse contractors to pay employees unable to work at an approved federal site or to telework. At the National Security Agency, lack of controls led to millions of dollars in improper payments under the CARES Act. That's according to an audit by the NSA's Office of Inspector General. Here with more, the Assistant IG for Audits, Jamal Hall. Mr. Hall, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. And what did you look at here? Basically, the entire program of payments to contractors that the NSA made under the CARES Act? Yes. So we took a look at the entire payment program. We looked at the period from March to the end of August 2020. And we were really looking for, you know, variances between kind of what was provided for CARES reimbursement versus kind of the data and evidence that we had available at the time. And what we did find was a lot of really good sort of questionable items to come out of it and variances that cause additional questions in the future. All right. And your methodology was to take 25 sample invoices, or did you have a bigger base of information than that? Oh, yes. We did take a sample of 25 invoices at the time, and we did it based almost on the sort of the category. And it was out of like 2145 invoices that we had available. So a lot of times from an audit and yellow book standpoint, what we do is we select the sample size based on the amount of testing that we do, the extent of that testing. So it dictates the sample size. So in this case, we knew we couldn't do, you know, 50% because we were really going to get into the details here. So what we did was we took a look at the labor categories, the different contract categories for the contract. So we selected between time and materials, cost, firm fixed price, And we took sort of a weighted sample of those different contract types to kind of formulate our 25 sample invoices. But you do feel that the results are projectable across the entire 2,145 population of those invoices? Only projectable from the process standpoint, I would say. So the processes were systemic, and that's what we found. We wouldn't necessarily project sort of the dollar figure, the 16.4 question cost against the overall total number of invoices. So we always a little a little gun shy of doing that. And we should say, too, that the NSA did jump on this because by the 31st, I believe it is, of March of that year, they had guidance out to contractors on how they should submit invoices under the CARES Act. So the, the agency was quick to get on board, correct? Correct. NSA was extremely aggressive in implementing this, putting out guidance saying on the 27th of March was the start of the period to make this happen. And of course, the Director of National Intelligence was also extremely aggressive in ensuring that the intelligence community participated in this program for its flexibilities. But definitely NSA was extremely aggressive. And one of the things, if I may kind of give the agency credit here, was that they did set up guardrails immediately to try to make sure that they had control of this. They did things like make sure that the word CARES appeared in the invoice number or that the contractors had to submit, you know, when they submit a CARES invoice, they also had to submit a certification memorandum, which basically said that they did not receive reimbursement from other coronavirus programs. And then they also had to submit an hours tracker, which basically, you know, it, it gets into details, but it's basically a spreadsheet that, you know, lines up individuals with the hours worked and the CARES hours so they can better do tracing themselves. So they were aggressive about implementing this, but I have to give them credit. They did try to set up some guardrails to kind of get their hands around it. We are speaking with Jamal Hall. He is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the National Security Agency. But nevertheless, you found there were bills for employees that you couldn't find on the base of employees for that contract, non-existent possibly. You found discrepancies in hours, in rates. So give us the top line of what you found that uh, maybe didn't go so well. 
You know, we found issues where individuals were billed to the agency that were not necessarily associated with NSA contracts. And from that, we found a few of those. We found instances where individuals exceeded the hours that they were supposed to work. So if you're supposed to work a 40-hour average work week, which is understandable under a reimbursement program, that we had folks that actually submitted our requests for over those 40 hours. We also had where folks exceeded their labor rates. So labor rates are sort of established in the contract. But when the reimbursement requirements came back in, you had these individuals that exceeded those labor rates. So a lot of varying sort of issues across the board that we found there. We did also, I mean, I talk about sample of 25. I got to say, we also did a sample of 20 because one of the things that we wanted to do was, and we try to be as thorough as we can with these projects, right? We took a look at, you know, for invoices that were submitted for a period of service before and after the CARES period, which I think I mentioned started at 27 March, but also ended like September 30th. So we found one instance where there was an invoice submitted and it went to March 11th, which is before the CARES period, and tried to figure out what happened there. And when we asked agency uh, contract offer representatives, offered that, hey, this is, you know, partly due to the changing policies. We did another one where we found where, you know, a request was put in and the period was after. And what we had there was just, honestly, uh, just bad tracking and bad sort of understanding of the hours that were supposed to be recorded and, again, you know, kind of verifying the number of hours that they were supposed to go over. So we found a lot of different issues across the board, which you would kind of say was you would expect in an unprecedented sort of response that the agency took like this. Sure. And so was this basically because of the speed and the amount of manual checking required or is there some sort of basic controls that should be in their system now that were not in place? I must say that what you said was definitely dead on. I'll put that as number one, right? The fact that this is unprecedented, the fact that it was immediate. But it also kind of borne out some things as well. So first off, one of the things that happened was the guidance was constantly evolving. You had 10 memos come out during the period from DOD, Director of National Intelligence, and OMB. You had 25 guidance documents come from the agency, right? You had six different versions of the certification memo template and four different versions of the hour tracker spreadsheet that I mentioned, right? I, I can imagine that'd be very difficult for a core who was processing and going through these invoices to make sure that they were using the most up-to-date guidance. Another factor was, yeah, in the immediacy, there was also reduced staffing which is also a thing that affected a lot of federal agencies. And because of that reduced staffing, you had cores that sometimes had to approve contracts that they weren't as familiar with. And when we talked to some of these cores, they felt uncomfortable applying CARES requirements against those invoices. And this is something else that kind of came up uh, that borne out. You know, we did a report back here that we released unclassified in uh, 20 October of last year, 2021. And what we found was that there's generally just an over-reliance on contractor-provided support. And this kind of borne out as well. This is what we saw in some of our results. For this audit, when we talked to 20 cores, four of them kind of shared that they relied on the contractor's word and provided documents to verify the accuracy of the invoices, which is not something that you would expect. You expect it to be some sort of independent verification, right? And then also, you know, previously, and this is kind of just the timing of this, from that prior audit that we've done of cost reimbursement contracts, We also found that the fact that core oversight was not as mature as it should have been. So we found, you know, vague and effective core roles, responsibilities, and oversight procedures that the agency was still working on due to the audit. So a lot of those things kind of came up around the same time. Sometimes I think the contracting officer representative might be one of the toughest jobs in government. But is it possible then to know the total number of hours 
that were involved here that were paid improperly or the total dollars that went out that should not have? Are you able to sum that up? So one of the things that we did not do, and it wasn't actually part of the scope because we're looking for the, you know, the veracity of the invoices, was go and do an end run back around to look at how they calculated the total, right? So from an OIG standpoint, I can't necessarily say verify with uh, assurance the total number of hours. Uh, it's approximately uh, $117 million. The number of hours the agency is working back, and they provided their number of hours, but we did not verify that either. So that's one of the things that we, we, we're going to go back and, you know, kind of just maybe take a look at in the future and say, okay, well, you know, generally, how is this total number sort of calculated? But it wasn't necessarily within the scope of the project. And this might also be out of the scope, but can the agency get that money back, either by just reimbursement checks from the contractors or simply deducting it from future invoices, if that's even legal or possible under federal accounting? That I do not know. And, and, I, and I should never say that in, during an interview, right? But one of the things that I do know is that we are tracking how they recover it because we do put out uh, recommendations where specifically for the cost that we questioned, the $16.4 million, we're asking them to go back, go to the contract and, and make sure that they collect that additional evidence to ensure the accuracy of the hours, the rates, and the contractor status. We're also not just for the invoices that we questioned, but for the ones that we didn't question, the broader sense, we're asking them to do a risk assessment. We're recommending that they do a risk assessment for all the invoices and determine the level of testing that's needed to identify where the unsupported payments are, where these problems are. And then, of course, perform that testing and recover that cost. So through our follow-up process, we are tracking to make sure that if something is deemed unsupportable, that they are unable to get the, you know, the evidence to support those costs, that they actually recover. Sure, because it's not as if they paid ransomware to some outfit in Romania. These are companies they're still dealing with and working with day by day. Exactly, and these are relationships that I assume they want to maintain as well, right? And there is a billion dollars at stake almost, and so that's not Trump change, even for the NSA. Exactly. Jamal Hall is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the National Security Agency. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser, 
And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. 
I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. You think your dog deserves the best for the holidays. BarkBox knows they do. And the best is exactly what BarkBox delivers every month. You'll get fun-themed goodies curated for your dog, and you'll be joining a community of pups and their people. We're celebrating sugar season with a double batch of irresistible toys, treats, and chews from our season sweetings-themed box. To start spoiling your dog and get your free upgrade, visit BarkBox.com podcast. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.